Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number, is it 166? Seven. 167. Indeed. I'm Dr. Brett Weinstein. This is Dr. Heather Hying. It is, uh, you know, it's Saturday. It is Saturday. We've come to you with another prime numbered episode, and it is our third year anniversary of doing these live streams. And uh, we're going to say just a little bit more about that after we get through all the top of the hour logistics. But we're going to talk to you a little bit about today. We're going to come back with uh, a slight update on the raccoon dog story we talked about last last week. And the raccoon dogs are unaltered, but the story has moved ahead a bit. Yes. Um, yes. I, as far as I know, they're unaltered. I don't know. I didn't interview any of them. Nor did I do the animal behavior on them. I actually did see a, uh, I don't know what the origin of it was, but somebody did uh, place online a brief interview with a raccoon dog who... Um, was it Brendan? <laughs> it was a bizarre interview in which the dog did make the correct argument that, in fact, it was slated to be eaten and therefore was entitled to spread whatever it wanted. Um, but anyway, I have digressed. Is this a complete farce or... Or did you actually see something? I am reporting. I am reporting. Yep. I'm not compelled that this was an actual raccoon dog, nor that the words were, um, in fact, raccoon dog in origin. But I did see something to this effect. Okay. I have no idea what's happening. Uh, so after that, uh, we're going to talk a bit about AI. Um, Brett has a number of things to say about AI, uh, stemming, going back a long ways, right? And then we're also going to talk about uh, some things in the trans universe that have transpired this week. And uh, that that will be it. But let us let us get through the top of the hour stuff first. We follow these live streams with a live Q&A. Uh, you can ask questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com. If you're watching live, you can join the chat at Odyssey. That's O-D-Y-S-E-E. -E. No. Is it two S's? I don't even know. I know it's not <laughs> spelled the way Odyssey is spelled, but I'm... It's O-D-Y-S-E-E. -E. Okay. Um, you please consider joining uh, me at my Substack, Natural Selections. Uh, last week, to, I wrote How Now, Cow of Brown. Uh, and this week, it was Stark and Exposed, a... Uh, a slight uh, adventure into modern agriculture, not agriculture, mm. not, not at all, modern architecture and um, the ways in which uh, the the movement that included um, Le Corbusier and, and Gropius and such actually very much mirrors and was part of the postmodernism that took over so many domains in the mid 20th century. Uh, so... Uh, so that's that's in Natural Selections this week, which I encourage you to to check out. We have, of course, a store which is uh, run by, and the print shop is also owned by uh, a a couple uh, who are just doing an amazing job. And Zach, do you happen to know because I've taken it out of my notes here what the URL for the store is? Is it just Dark Horse Store? There, darkhorsestore.org. So consider um, consider checking things out there. We've got things like stickers, which you'll see on the back of my laptop right there, Dark Horse stickers. And uh, soon, or maybe already, pins, lapel pins. Yes, and, and not lapel, but you know, any, anywhere you want to wear them, really. I mean, I suppose. If you are someone who occasionally needs to be shaken vigorously to bring you back to your senses, then you should wear lapels. Otherwise, it's pretty much up to you. But the question is, what are pins? Well, if you wear them... Mm -hmm. which you could do because sometimes you need to be jarred back into reality, or you could just wear them for stylistic reasons, then the pins would go well on them. I remember um, when we were professors, and one of our most wonderful and most frustrating students 
who was a very tall and broad man, um, like you know, much larger than me, uh, was uh, just not doing the work that I knew he was going to do excellently if he would ever turn it in. And, and you said to me, you just need to advise him to wear lapels to class the next time, and then you can reach up and shake him by them. And, uh, yes. and uh, I don't think it worked. I believe I know exactly who we're talking about, and I believe that later on <laughs> in our trajectory through that strange space, he came to class wearing a t-shirt and a separate set of lapels that he had. He had um, had fashion yeah, he just for the occasion, exactly knowing that, that sometimes people would want to would, grab him by the lapels, he, even though he towered over almost he everyone. Would, he had no yeah. illusions about himself, and he mm -hmm. understood that he did need to be shaken by his lapels <laughs> every now and again and wished to facilitate, you know? Yes. So that's uh, it's an honor to be... Uh, to be respected enough that somebody would put on lapels in case you needed to shake them. Yes, indeed. Okay. Um, we And of course, we have Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, uh, which uh, not only is it available everywhere books are sold, but there's also signed copies available right here in the San Juan Islands at Darville's Bookstore on Orcas, uh, which you can actually go and get signed copies. And we just signed a bunch more this week, uh, or you can order from them. That's Darville's. And we are supported by you, of course. We appreciate you subscribing, liking, um, sharing both our full videos and the clips uh, that are produced on uh, both YouTube and uh, Odyssey. And of course, we've got the full audio episodes everywhere, everywhere that you might listen to audio. Uh, you can also support us by uh, joining us at our Patreons. Tomorrow at my Patreon, we have our monthly private Q&A. Uh, so if you join us there, it's it's a smaller group. We actually interact with the chat. It's really a, a ton of fun. And um, you also have conversations, monthly conversations at yours. So we encourage you to join us there. You can access the Discord server where they have book clubs and karaoke and all sorts of fun things. And of course, we have sponsors. We are very, very grateful for our sponsors. Uh, we pick and choose them carefully, and we presume that they pick and choose us carefully as well. Uh, and so, as always, we start um, these episodes with three uh, with three ads. And without further ado, here we go. I managed to find the ad in I, that, time. I did hand it to you oh, just you moments did. ago. No, and I had already buried it, but I was able to find it, um, yes. in part because my feet are so comfortable and well taken care of that I wasn't distracted by any pains. That did that, help. Yeah, mm -hmm. it helped. And, and to what do you attribute the uh, the awesomeness of your of your feet? I attribute it almost entirely to the fine folks at uh, Vivo Barefoot Shoes. What a coincidence. What a coincidence. Yeah. They are our first sponsor, uh, and they make shoes for feet. Everyone amazing. should try them, and it is amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, most shoes are made for someone's idea of feet. Vivos, however, are made by people who have feet and know how to use them. And word is spreading. We have been asked by strangers if the shoes we are wearing are as good as they have heard, and yes, they are. Here at Dark Horse, we love these shoes. They are beyond comfortable. The tactile feedback from the surfaces you are walking on is amazing, and they cause no pain at all because there are no pressure points forcing your feet into odd positions, which might cause you to misplace things and not be able to find them because you were, for example, distracted. They're fantastic. Our feet are the product of millions of years of evolution. Humans have evolved to walk, move, and run barefoot. Modern shoes that are overly cushioned and strangely shaped have negatively impacted foot function and are contributing to a health and disorganization crisis because people move less than they might, in part because their shoes make their feet hurt. Enter Vivo Barefoot. 
The Evo Barefoot shoes are designed wide to provide natural stability, thin to enable you to feel more, and flexible to help you build natural strength from the ground up. Foot strength increases by 60% in a matter of months just by walking around in them, and organization improves by 70%. That is a personal anecdote, but I'm 70% better organized since wearing Vivo barefoot shoes. Dude, you need to start wearing them to sleep. <laughs> yeah, I need the other 30%. Yeah. Oh, no, no. Yeah, I just think that you, you still have a long way to go. There is an argument to be made. <laughs> Maybe my gloves are too tight. That could be. Um, the number of people wearing Vivo Barefoots is growing. Once people start wearing these shoes, they don't seem to stop. <laughs> I know something that's not stopping. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I just got to get through another paragraph or two no, and it'll be fine. I mean, the fact is that this, like, Vivo is one of our oldest, our, our most, our, our our oldest sponsors that sounds wrong um but we'd love these shoes and uh and i think that they can accommodate any amount of silliness yes uh, in, I think, in the ad read i think they have mm -hmm. because but you we, attributing your um still abominable but you are arguing slightly improved organization 70 percent better you just don't realize it because that 30 percent. i'm not sure that still a bummer. making up data during an ad read is actually i labeled one. it as an anecdote but i will say it's 70% better, which still doesn't leave me in a Can good spot. Can you operationalize organizational improvement for me? Uh, yes, let's do that after the podcast. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Okay. Okay. Vivo Barefoot has a great <laughs> range of footwear for kids and adults for every activity from hiking to training and everyday wear. They're a certified B Corp that is pioneering regenerative business principles. Their footwear is produced using sustainably sourced natural and recycled materials with the aim to protect the natural world so you can run wild on it. Go to VivoBarefoot.com and use the code DARKHORSE15 to get an exclusive 15% off. Additionally, all new customers get a 100-day free trial so you can see if you love them as much as we do. That's V-I-V-O-B-A-R-E-F-O-O-T.com and use the code DARKHORSE15 at checkout. Good job, man. Thank you. Our second sponsor this week is Helix. Now, Helix makes fantastic mattresses, and they might not want you to wear your Vivos to bed, so you're going to have to sort of do a trade-off. Do you think that the Helix mattresses also improve organization, or just the Vivos? I don't know. It's for you to decide and produce your own anecdotes My feeling is if there is a trial period, one should not wear shoes on the mattress during the trial period. But afterwards, you mm -hmm. know, who's to say? Who's, who's to say, yes. Uh, Helix makes fantastic mattresses that are supremely sleep enhancing. It's amazing what a difference an excellent mattress can make for good sleep. Our animals love it too. A little too much. Maddie, our Labrador, who has left the building, um, is not allowed on the bed and she knows it. But we know that she takes naps on the new Helix mattress when we're not around. It's just that good. Seriously, Helix Sleep is a premium mattress brand that offers 14 different mattresses based on your unique sleep preferences. Take the Helix Sleep Quiz online, and in less than two minutes, you'll be directed to which of their mini mattresses is best for you. Do you sleep on your back, your side, your stomach? Do you toss and turn or sleep like a log? Do you prefer a firmer or softer mattress? All of these are taken into consideration with the Helix Sleep Quiz. Sleep like a log has never quite struck me as right. Yeah, logs don't sleep. Logs don't logs sleep. Logs don't sleep. They just kind of lay there until they don't, at which point they're not laying there like logs either. Okay, logs don't sleep, but dogs aren't especially sick and clams aren't especially happy as far as I can tell. So there's a lot of wiggle room. Is it that they appear, to, like if you look at them just right, if you turn it just right, it appears that they're smiling sort of like Cheshire clams? <laughs> um. I don't think so. Okay. I think it's people projecting. Happy people, apparently. Happy people, uh, sick dog people, yeah. uh, log sleeping people. Right. 
However, your preferences in sleep are all taken into consideration with the Helix Sleep Quiz. Once you find your perfect mattress, it ships straight to your door free of charge. Then you'll have 100 nights to try it out with any penalty during which you should not sleep in your shoes. If you love it, which you almost certainly will, they've got 10 to 15 year warranties on all of their mattresses. Helix has models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side, and models with a more responsive foam, which provides optimal support for stomach and back sleepers. Enhanced cooling features keep you from overheating at night, and every Helix mattress combines individually wrapped steel coils in the base with premium foam layers on top, providing excellent support for your spine and comfort for all of you. Helix has been awarded the rank of number one mattress by both GQ and Wired magazine, and we can see why. Helix mattresses are made in America at their very own manufacturing facility. They're built for human bodies and built to last. Helix also supports military, first responders, teachers, and students by giving them a special discount on site. We look forward to our Helix mattress providing us with years of excellent sleep. You should look forward to yours doing so as well. Helix is offering up to 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for, your list for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash darkhorse and use promo code darkhorse. That's helixsleep, H-E-L-I-X-S-L-E-E-P dot com slash darkhorse. This is their best offer yet and won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Two points of clarification. One, the sleep quiz should be taken while awake but not driving. Two, when they say sleep on your side, they mean your orientation rather than sleeping on your side versus the other person's side, which would make it your side. Yep. It's going to be one of those kind of days. I can tell. <laughs> yes, you can. After this many years, you should be able to. Our final sponsor this week is Maddie's favorite. I mean, she likes the shoes just fine because sometimes when we put them on, that means we're going out for a walk. She likes the mattress a bit too much, but her favorite is Sundays. Sundays is dry dog food. When they approached us, when Sundays approached us about being a sponsor, we were dubious. Maddie, our dog, who's absent at the moment is Labrador. Frankly, I was going to, Brett did an ad recently for a guest episode in which we staged it so that uh, you would feed her during the ad. And it was awesome. And I was going to do that, but we ran out of Sundays last night and Maddie was like, I am not showing up on camera if you don't have Sundays for me. No. We'll uh, see. That we'll see. Yeah, that's not going to work. I might bring a cat. <clears throat> uh, but she's a Labrador. Labs will eat basically anything. What possible difference, we thought, was she going to show an interest between her usual kibble, a widely available high-end brand, and Sundays? Well, we were wrong. Maddie loves the food that Sundays makes. Seriously, loves it. Um, and indeed, when we ran out and gave her some of that other high-end brand, um, this morning she looked at her bowl, looked at us, sat her butt down, and didn't eat. She wanted her Sundays. Guess what? It is far better for her than the standard burnt kibble that comprises most dried dog food, even the high-end stuff. Sundays is the first and only human-grade air-dried dog food. Combining the nutrition and taste of all natural human-grade foods with the ease of a zero-prep, ready-to-eat formula, Sundays is an amazing way to feed your dog, and in a pinch, a person, too. Yep. I didn't try to feed you with it. You tried to feed you with it. Best right? dog food I ever tried. Sundays is... <laughs> Sundays is easy for humans, too. No fridge, no prep, no cleanup, no gross wet dog food smells... And you may be able to feed your husband on it. <laughs> Sundays is gently air-dried and ready to eat. Far. I mean, you felt nutritioned? I felt, I felt oh, yeah. No, Satiated? It's, it, it, it's fine dog food, but, you know. Trying a taco? <laughs> a little crunch? Going a bit far. Okay. Yep. Sundays is gently air-dried and ready to eat. No artificial binders, synthetic additives, or general garbage. Seriously, look at the label. All of Sunday's ingredients are easy to pronounce, except for quinoa, and healthy for dogs to eat. In a blind taste test, Sundays outperformed leading competitors 40 to 0. 
I thought that was going to be a made up number when I first saw that too. But again, here's the thing. When I have a bowl of her previous food, which we still have on hand, uh, ready for her, she's enthusiastic usually. But once she's been having Sundays, she's not enthusiastic and she always goes for the Sundays preferentially, always. She bounces and she she spins and she does all these amazing <clears throat> anticipatory gymnastic leaps in anticipation for the Sundays and not for the other stuff. Do you want to make your dog happy with her diet and keep her healthy? Try Sundays. We've got a special deal for our listeners. Receive 35% off your first order. Go to sundaysfordogs.com slash darkhorse or use code darkhorse at checkout. That's S-U-N-D-A-Y-S-F-O-R-D-O-G-S dot com forward slash darkhorse. Switch to Sundays and feel good about what you are feeding your dog. All right, question for you. Okay. Why is quinoa spelled that way, given that the Inca did not have written language? It should just be spelled phonetically, right? It's, you know, we actually know the person to ask. Right? Yes, we, we do. Ha- we have a Quechua, a, a Quechua expert in our in our sphere. I mean, everyone does, but... Yeah, so... Um, I don't... You know, uh, it's always the question when um, languages that weren't written at all or weren't written in our alphabet are um, turned into being spelled into our alphabet often it feels like why they spell them that way and sometimes it's going to be about the way that the first person who was being interviewed about their words were, was pronouncing it or the hearing on the other end or sometimes i feel like it's just intentionally befuddling the ellis island phenomenon yeah yeah, yeah exactly but yeah, yeah quinoa, quinoa does not seem very much like yeah. quinoa quinoa and quinoa are yeah miles apart yeah kilometers per all right um so (laughs) we've been at this for three years yes three years and um feels like two of those years were this morning already (laughs) (laughs) sometimes sometimes yes Mm -hmm. sometimes Uh, our very first one was on march 24th 2020 at which point uh the lockdowns were beginning it was a it was the wild, wild west out there, and I don't think we did or could have predicted half of what has happened since then. Um, but we are, as ever, grateful to our audience and to the you know a remarkable number of people who get in contact with us. Yeah, that was not none of that was ad. Yeah, even the discussion about. Quinoa is totally unremunerated. Yeah. So, Our producer know. has just returned from the other side of the border, so he's still, there's no excuse. Yeah. Uh, uh, I said border. I meant equator, actually. Um, lots of borders. He crossed lots of equator, lots of borders, only one equator. And now I'm thrown again. Yeah. I, I can't even get, get it right. Equator, border, one equator crossing, multiple border crossings. He's back. That wasn't an ad. This is the third anniversary episode of our Dark Horse live streams. You were doing Dark Horse for a, a bit, about three, uh, six months before that. Um, but we've been doing these weekly. We started off doing them twice weekly, uh, pretty much reliably ever since. And it has been quite a wild ride. Yeah. And I should say, um, Dark Horse uh, started as a discussion program, me and one other person. Uh, and we were doing it from a uh, studio in downtown Portland. When yeah. COVID happened, Zach and I grabbed everything we could pull out of that studio and moved it to our place and got a lot of stuff from a hardware store and built the set that we were on uh, the whole time we were in Portland under lockdown. But that the uh, the idea for the live streams came from you. What you said was we were 
doing something, trying to sort out what was going on with uh, COVID, you know, trying to use our biological toolkit to make sense of it. And you felt that we really needed to share what we were doing because everybody was struggling to figure it out and it might be useful. And uh, that was a tremendously good idea. And we know because we run into people all the time who tell us what this meant to them during um, the uh, the COVID period um, that it was the right idea. And I'm, I'm so glad that we did it in spite of all of the terrible stuff that came back at us in many regards. Yeah, no, it's, it's been, um, it's been clarifying again, you know, there, we had, we had, uh, an, an evergreen moment of scales falling from our eyes and, um, and finding clarity around both issues and relationships, uh, that, uh, could be painful. But, um, as I began saying back then, well, I'm glad I know. Yep. And once again, that's the case. That's the case um, throughout COVID as, as well, that as painful as it can be to realize that people, that the relationships, some of the relationships you have aren't what they seemed, uh, and um, people don't have the values that they claim to have. Um, I'd rather know. I'd always rather know. And, and that's, I mean, I think one of the things that you learn in all of this is that some people wouldn't rather know, right? Some people would rather stay in the dark. And, um, and of course, just as when Evergreen blew up, um, that's coming up on six years now. Um, we, yeah, lost some relationships, but gained so many more that were extraordinary. And uh, we have made some just amazing, um, both professional relationships and friendships uh, since we've been doing these live streams and are very grateful, very grateful for that. It's better than that. Awesome. Yes. Is that the first time you ever said that? Not in life, but, um, you it's know, even better than it's that. even better than that. Terrific. Let's do it. So you said you're grateful to know. Yeah. And I would go way past that. It is essential that you find out who it is who can be relied upon under crisis circumstances, because the worst thing that can happen yeah. is you can imagine based on how people behave under normal circumstances um, what they're going to do in a crisis, you can be dead wrong. And then when the crisis happens, the cost of discovering that in real time is spectacular. So as yeah. terrible as it was mm -hmm. to have seen people that we would have imagined would stand up under crisis conditions uh, fail in that, uh, as you say, it's better to discover it so that you don't put weight on that ice. Uh, and the people who you discover in the crisis, the people who shine, sometimes people surprise you or other times you meet people that you never would have encountered absent the crisis and you discover that they are up to the challenge. Um, it, it is a admittedly painful, but it is an upgrade to the quality of life. Yes. Um, so anyway, the universe, when it puts you through a crisis and reveals who can't handle it, is doing you a favor. And it is important to realize that that's what's happening um, as much as it is uh, heartbreaking to, to lose people. Absolutely. So thank you. Indeed. Um, okay. And just one uh, brief comment about a uh, story we talked about at some length last week uh, before you um, start talking about, <clears throat> excuse me, AI is the raccoon dog research that we discussed last week. Uh, and we were, we read a number of bits from the Atlantic article that had come out and shared some of the New York Times. And part of our objection was just like with uh, 
the Together trial, uh, the results were promote were, were released and promoted in mainstream media as if they were um, scientific findings that everyone could assess, and therefore the fact that they were out there sort of implies that they have been assessed by the scientific community. Uh, but there was literally no paper at all. It was it, there was a there was a press release, I think, or you know maybe just an, a couple of interviews. There was nothing. Uh, well, that has now changed, kind of. Uh, so on March 20th, just you know, five days ago, a couple days after our last live stream, they did indu- indude. Mm. I'm trying. That must mean something, but I don't know. Um, they did indeed uh, post something to Zenodo, a preprint server. Although they say they call it a report, and they say, "quote um, oh, I actually don't have the quote." Um, they do not intend to publish this report in a scientific journal. <laughs> really? I wonder why. Uh, well, when you look at the paper, you can begin to kind of see why. I, I have only skimmed it. Uh, I have noticed that a lot of other people have already dug deep and found, you know, various various problems with it. It's messy and confusing and pretty long. And and the authors say in their little preamble, they're not going to publish this on as a scientific paper. Like, what does that just give them cover? Like, oh, we put a thing out, but, well, it's not really the real thing. So, you know, it's just like it's one faint after another. Um, and in the Near the end of the paper, they say the authors claim that, quote, data accumulated since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic point clearly to a zoonotic origin of SARS-CoV-2. And then they proceed to make a series of the weakest arguments I can possibly imagine. I mean, it's it's really remarkable what like the, the level of analysis and that they basically don't expect anyone to check their work. Like, A, they started by not letting anyone check their work. And now they put something out where they're like, yeah, but it's not really a paper. We're not going to um, we're not going to submit this to a journal, and yet they make these claims that just sound like the strongest claims possible, but the actual claims aren't. They're, they're insane. Well, in fact, they said this was the strongest evidence yet for a zoonotic origin. This, this like, finding some, some bits of finding... raccoon dog genome in the same place as some SARS-CoV-2. Right, some really weak... Yeah circumstantial evidence that is actually perfectly consistent with the idea that the Wuhan Institute of Virology is close enough to the seafood market that people who work at one are liable to shop at the other. And we know there was SARS-CoV-2 there, and we know there are raccoon dogs there, so this evidence doesn't give us anything new. It's not evidence. And so what they are doing, and we need a name for this, and at the moment I don't have one. It's somehow, um, it's like... uh, headline priming or headline ginning, Mm. right? The whole idea is to pretend that there is science that justifies a headline and that the only, it's a, it's a, it's a data flow problem where, you know, the, they're going to put out the conclusion of the paper. And of course the paper's coming and it will, you know, it's basically the bad habit that uh, science folks get into where they will read the abstract of a paper and they will not figure out whether the method section justifies it or the statistics that were done were correct or any of those mm-hmm. things. Um, so the, the idea is you read the abstract and the whole thing is based on trust. This is like, well, we're not even going to give you an abstract. What we're going to give you is the headline you would write if there was an abstract that was justified by a paper. Right. And then we're not going to follow up with the paper because, of course, the value of the whole thing is the exercise of producing the headline. And why would you go through the, you know, why would you put yourself at risk of having your headline invalidated by scrutiny when you could just allow the headline to float for good as if a paper had had emerged? Um, yes. This has been going on a long time, by the way. Yes, it has. Um, 
I remember this from the death of Dolly, the sheep. Ugh. Right, who was... So this is going to have been like late 90s, early aughts? Uh, this is going to be uh, early aughts. Um, and I had a dog in the fight because in my paper on telomeres, I had predicted that she would die of age-related pathologies anomalously early. And they said she didn't. Did they give us a paper? No. They mm -hmm. said, they literally put out a press release in which they said that they would do a full necropsy and they would let us know if they found anything, right? Which is insane because at the time that Dolly died, she was, of course, the oldest uh, mammal clone on Earth. Mm -hmm. And so a full necropsy doesn't begin to explain what they should have done for this animal. A, they gave the implausible explanation that they had put her out of her misery because they couldn't stand to see her suffer from the pathology that they swore was not age-related. Yeah. Um, um, but you know, okay, whatever the cause of death, this animal should have been thin-sectioned one end to the other so that future researchers could go back and figure out what was taking place there. Necropsy is yep. not the beginning of what they should have done. But anyway, my basic point was there was no paper there either, right? right? This was a case in which there was a lot at stake, a lot financially at stake, because the patent on nuclear transfer cloning was incredibly valuable, and its value would be lower if it caused age-related pathologies. Right. So in any case, the, the trick of creating a headline or creating an impression that scientific work has been reported but not actually presenting the work is a, uh, a tactic that one should expect to see where there is a great deal at stake, either with respect to something like COVID origins or with respect to something like a valuable... Uh, patent like nuclear transfer cloning. Mm -hmm. And um, I would also point out that interestingly, that report on raccoon dogs, it came in advance of the revelation of a paper that uh, Robert Malone called Smoking Gun on COVID origins, where basically it reported uh, an experiment in which... Uh, this week? In the last four days? Yeah, uh, uh, last week, somehow. But um, I mean, you just said that this, the report here predated... The headline, the initial report in mm -hmm. which we all got the word that something important had happened with raccoon dogs, right, preceded by less than a week the revelation of this published work in which the enhancement of uh, SARS-like coves to become infective of humans was discovered in the literature. So anyway, check out Robert Malone's Twitter and search for the term smoking gun and you will find that um that research uh i'm reminded you can show my screen just briefly um this is a article published in forbes in 2020 uh in july 2020 in which they say you must not do your own research when it comes to science and they make they make this argument that it's just too tough it's too challenging and you're putting yourself and everyone else at risk by doing so and compare that to zach if you would give me my screen back for a moment so i can show um this paper you can now now bring up this this is this is the report that they say is not destined for a uh, for a journal in which they make introductory remarks and say among other things uh Oh, they say somewhere in here that they are not going to uh, submit this to a journal, but uh, this paper is, oh, this report is not intended for publication in a journal. There it is. Um, 
their key, they start with key points, which is sometimes done in an actual scientific paper. Uh, but this is accessible if they would share more information, the likes of which you're supposed to do in science. And to have this kind of analysis happening at the same time as granted that Forbes article is from almost three years ago, but throughout this, we've been told, don't ask questions. Don't do your own research. Don't assess for yourself. Simply trust the authorities who've shown up with credentials that you may or may not be able to assess, with backgrounds and with skills that you may or may not be able to assess. And don't, don't pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Pay no attention to the fact that the entire system has been so, so corrupted by the role of money and federal granting agencies that the vast majority of people who are now doing science in the West, at least in the US, are doing little tiny reductionist pieces of science and will actually say if you ask them questions outside of their little domain, well, that's not my concern. So why would we trust you know, world health to people who will say, no, I just do this thing. I just do this little thing. And when you go looking, I spent a little bit of time looking at the backgrounds of a few of these authors who, you know, aren't, aren't the ones that we keep on hearing about. And indeed, they're just, they're just doing this narrow, you know, blinders on science for their entire careers. And where's the evidence that they actually know how to assess things? I don't find it. No, and clearly, clearly they don't for them to exactly. put their name to this. Um, clearly they don't uphold any such standard. And I will point out, so much of this, uh, so much of the malfeasance here come down to the application of two different standards depending upon whether you're on narrative or off narrative, right? Almost all of this, the things that uh, people who are dissidents are accused of violating the sacred rules of science... Um, the yeah. fact is those who are on narrative are granted no end of leeway in the same direction. So um, if you were to simply apply any consistent standard, you would come out with a far better answer than we have. And in fact, what's happening is, you know, somebody is peeking at who it is who is engaged in work and deciding whether to institute an impossible standard that can't be met or no standard at all so that you will meet it irrespective of whether what you've effectively done is publish a newspaper headline without a method. Yep. Um, and anyway, uh, of course this crashes the world, right? Science is not capable of, you know, science isn't a posture. It's not a costume, right? It's also it's, not optional. Right. And you, we've taken it for optional. It's like, it's, it's an affectation for many people who are calling themselves scientists. Yeah. You actually have to do the method correctly and you have to, um, do it according to the underlying philosophy of science where it doesn't work. Yeah. Right. The fact that it involves sciencey looking stuff or science, sciencey language has nothing to do with it. People with degrees, it doesn't matter. You either did the method right or you didn't. Yeah. Um, as long as we spend a little bit of time here, um, let me just let me just provide some of their evidence for their incredibly strong claims. So you can mm -hmm. show my screen again here, Zach. This is again from the report, um, purporting to show the strongest evidence uh, yet that uh, SARS-CoV-2 had a zoonotic origin. Data accumulated since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic point clearly towards a zoonotic origin of SARS-CoV-2. Oh. One, a preponderance of the earliest hospitalized COVID-19 patients were linked to a single location. Really? 
Two, the locations of early severe COVID-19 cases without a clear epidemiological link to the market, to the Hanan market, nevertheless, were so centered on and close to the market, it is clear that community transmission of SARS-CoV-2 began in this local area and only later expanded across Wuhan. Incredible. Incredible, Which, of right? course, depends on uh, a correct start date for the pandemic. Oh, yeah. And they, they're, they're definitely um, sticking with uh, January, you know, right. January-ish yeah. no, 2020 this is, this in this, this paper. This is nonsense. Um, and, it, you know, it just, it's it's all about the location. Uh, it, almost all of their pieces of evidence here. The strong, overwhelming evidence. And then let me just uh, finish with, these arg arguments stand in stark contrast to the absence of evidence for any other SARS-CoV-2 oh, emergence route. Oh, really? The route. absence of evidence? That's fascinating, even in the genome of the thing. Here, here's what they're doing, yeah. right? A, this couldn't possibly convince anybody who's paying attention in detail, I right? Think. So the purpose of this is to convince people who are not paying attention that something has happened that has mm -hmm. swung the pendulum in the direction of natural origin, right? Yep. So, and there's a vast number of people in that category, right? These are people who are, you know, glued to their New York Times and haven't understood that it is a propaganda arm of, of the government and who knows what else, right? These are people who just need the headline itself. And so the idea that there is like this cottage industry of generating headlines that serve the right people's interests and cause some large percentage of the audience that isn't doing its own research in any regard to jump. Well, it feels like this report, like not even a preprint, right? Because they say they're not going to um, submit it to a, a journal. It seems like this report, those bits that I just read are actually written to be pulled and quoted by the mainstream media. Right. Like this is not written for scientists. It's written for the media to do pull quotes. And you know, I don't I don't know. That's that's a hypothesis. It's written but it doesn't feel that 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 little bracketed argument that I just read part of I, I cannot remember, as, as bad as the scientific literature is, I cannot remember ever seeing anything so transparently flimsy in the discussion section, which is what that would more or less uh, be of an actual scientific paper. It actually is the uh, private citizen analog of, you know, the uh, busy scientist reading abstracts, right? Mm -hmm. There is a citizen that just pays attention to what the New York Times has concluded, right? Oh, natural origin, strongest evidence yet. Why? That does sound strong. On top of already strong evidence. Right. And it, well, what you, what's that you say? There's no evidence at all for a laboratory origin? Fascinating. Jeez, yeah. I wonder what those people... Well, on one side we've got evidence, and on the other side we have no evidence. Right. And well, I know which side I like. Yep. And so, you know, we certainly saw this with ivermectin in the TOGETHER trial, six months of looking at a slide from a presentation without a, a method. And then when you get the method, it is, of course, uh, fraudulent and caps the dosage. Uh, this is a trick, right? The yeah. trick, the purpose of the trick is in the New York Times, right? It's not to convince anybody who understands science, who is paying attention to the evidence, because it couldn't. It's too thin. It doesn't, there is no evidence here. Right. And combine that with articles like in Forbes in 2020 saying, when it comes to the science, do not do your own research. Right. Like, re really, that is that that is literally the argument coming across the transom of people. Um, it is your it is your civic responsibility to accept what we say. 
And I would argue, and we have argued many times, it's actually your civic responsibility to do no such thing. It is your civic responsibility to do the opposite. At the point that they tell you it is your civic responsibility to just accept what we say, you need to say, actually, now I will not. Yeah. Not you are uh, you are inherently wrong because you said that, but now I will explicitly ask for all of the evidence that you have laid out in as clear terms as possible so that I can assess. And most of the people who are being chastised for doing their own research aren't doing their own research per se. What they're doing is listening to unsanctioned channels where people like you and me who mm -hmm. did study biology, you know, have the relevant degrees, not only a biology degree, but evolutionary biology, which is highly relevant to many different facets of what unfolded under COVID, like listening to us and figuring out whether we're making sense is a totally reasonable thing for somebody who does not believe that they have the toolkit to do the analysis themselves to do, mm -hmm. right? And then how would you know if you're being suckered? Gee, mm -hmm. I don't know, track record? Would that do it, mm -hmm. right? The point is uh, they're trying to spook people. They're trying to poison the well of, well, what would you do if you didn't trust the official narrative? Maybe I would listen to people who were, you know, well qualified and also didn't trust the official narrative, see what they have to say. And if they turn out to be wrong across the board, okay, maybe they're not good at it. But if they turn out to be right across the board, I'm not going to make excuses over it, right? Yeah. Well. All right. Uh, let's segue to talking about AI. Yeah. All right. So the next crisis, which I, um, I, I'm going to confess my bent up front and then I'm going to start us down the road of how to think about this, because I think, unfortunately, whether we are interested in talking about this topic or not, it is about to take over the world in a way that is going to force us to it, rather like COVID, actually. Um, though I fear, uh, as much as I don't want to hear myself say this, I fear that what is at stake is actually vastly greater. Hmm. So here's the... Uh, the reason that this is the moment to start this discussion. We have had some weeks of uh, run-up, months of run-up with uh, ChatGPT 3.5, which was an update of a model that had some surprising capacity. It said some foolish things. There were lots of things it swore it couldn't do. Um, but it clearly had a uh, large amount of capability that had uh, not been seen previously in AI circles, much closer to passing a Turing test, for example, um, than, than previous, previous prototypes. That has now been updated to ChatGPT4. ChatGPT4 is now available. It's got a public interface. You can play with it, and it is vastly more capable, not surprisingly, than ChatGPT3.5. This has lots of folks who have been paying attention either because they're excited about artificial intelligence or because they have trepidations about artificial intelligence or in many people's cases, both. This has their attention because we are seeing capacities here that are um, nothing if not remarkable. And actually, I would point you to um, this is a little bit chronologically strange because a paper has just emerged. Zach, you want to show that PDF? 
A paper has just emerged, Sparks of Artificial General Intelligence, Early Experiments with GPT-4. Now, this paper does not emerge in the short period of time that ChatGPT-4 has been available to the public. This is out of Microsoft Research, and these researchers have had months to uh, play with it. Did this just come out? Yeah. Now, they report... And is it published, or is it... uh, It is preprint. It is on the archive. Um, nonetheless, it is an extensive paper and it is a, uh, very challenging paper, especially if AI isn't your bag. Um, however, I can say it reports a number of things that definitely got my attention. One of them is that this version four of GPT appears to do several things that those of us who are, and, you know, we're going to come at this as biologists. We're looking at something that's like an organism we know nothing about, and we're trying to understand what it is and isn't capable of. You know, when we look at an octopus, for example, we see a creature that does not have the characteristics that you would typically imagine go along with extremely creative intelligence uh, and consciousness. And yet we see behaviors in an octopus that tell us that those things at least belong on the table. It's certainly a highly intelligent animal, despite not having generational overlap and not being highly social. Um, it solves problems that are unambiguous. It can, you know, open jars and things like this. Um, but, you know, so we can look at a creature like that and we can say, look, it, it doesn't, you know, it's not, a, it's not a gorilla where we would expect these things or an elephant, right? This is a creature that doesn't have those characteristics, but it behaves like, it has, um, it, it has these things in its mind. We can look at GPT-4 uh, in the same way. And what we see are a number of things that ought to get any biologist's attention. One of them is it manifests a degree of um, theory of mind. That is to say, if and one of the things that makes uh, GPT-4 so interesting is that an average person can test it in ways that people um, may not have thought to official you know scientific uh, trained scientifically trained people may not have thought to query it but you can pose things to it and you can see how compelling the answer it puts together is and so one of the things that's demonstrated in this paper is theory of mind where you can describe a scenario and then you can you know ask what this character understands based on an indirect um, an indirect description, and uh, it is at least often capable of giving a correct response that shows theory of mind. Mm-hmm. It also is capable of tool use, which is fascinating, right? So when we look at an animal, and you know, certainly there are lots of animals that use tools, right? Many more than was once understood. We've seen, you know, things like crows, which are highly intelligent social creatures, use tools to solve puzzles. We, of course, see chimpanzees use tools. Otters use tools. Um, I have recently seen uh, otters both using rocks to uh, bash onto shellfish and using shellfish, which they bash onto rocks. Anyway, so tool use, you know, is not limited to the most highly intelligent and presumably conscious creatures. Crows engage in meta-tool use, even. Um, So I think it's the New New Caledonian crows that have been observed to basically make tools 
use tools to make other tools with which to accomplish the job they want. So, you know, just sort of tool use embedded within tool use. Yep. Um, tool use embedded within tool use. Uh, I'm also, I will just take an aside and say that I think if you are interested in the question of what is present in other intelligent creatures, I would advise people to cautiously uh, point that question at the subreddit. Uh, I believe it's R animals being geniuses. Now, not everything on that subreddit is a bona fide case of um, of intelligence. Some of it is probably people training creatures. I saw uh, one in which a turtle, which I would say I would strongly suspect does not have remotely the capacity to play tic-tac-toe, in which a turtle appears to play tic-tac-toe mm. and win. Yeah. Uh, well, A, it could lose, you know, 49 games out of 50 and you could film all of them and it could win once but i don't think it can play tic-tac-toe no. um so what i think is happening is the person has trained the animal to move to a position on the tic-tac-toe board you know using some sort of a stimulus yeah but anyway my point would be there's lots of stuff on the subreddit that actually does appear to be animal solving um, problems in utterly remarkable ways. And you've got to start thinking about, you know, is this individual unusually intelligent? Even so, maybe that says that that kind of capacity exists in the creatures. But anyway, if you, take a look at what you see there and then ask yourself what you would have, what test you would have to run to figure out whether or not the example in question means what it appears to mean or whether it could be produced by some other mechanism or could be just lucky in some cases. I will. I may. I will post this as well. So I finally found. Um, you can show this, Zach. If you, if if this is something you're interested in, this is something we should probably come back to. This is a paper that I used to use. Um, Human Animal Behavior Program, a 2010 paper, Animal Tool Use, Current Definitions, and an Updated Comprehensive Catalog. So, um, you know, there there will be some anecdotal accounts here because, especially once you're talking about primates, there's often you know someone even if they spend hundreds or even thousands of hours watching a troop, they may see one example of something, and uh, and that is that is still an observation even if it doesn't uh, make for a data set. Um, but this is an extraordinary uh, paper that oops um, <laughs> uh, that um, basically goes through. Um, and it's 69 pages long has these tables of all of the at that at that point known you know 13 years ago known examples of tool use across animalia right which so yeah an excellent place to build your model and really you know i'm not going to pretend to be uh an expert on ai what i am as an animal behaviorist as you are and so thinking about what might be in the mind of another creature is familiar territory and uh, um, can you give me my screen back, please? Thank you. Um, using those tools to understand where we may be headed is pretty important. But in any case, let me um, set the stage this way. I have watched people in my friend group discussing their own creative uses of what is newly available. Mm -hmm. um, and um, what I see, I do see some trepidation about it from various circles, including uh, amongst people I find very excited about uh, the growth of this thing. Um, but I, 
I'm actually concerned that in general, those who are prone to see the potential in this technology may actually be missing the, uh, the problem uh, where we are headed. And mm. what I said on uh, Rogan the last time I was on was we aren't ready. I mm. don't think we did any of the legwork necessary for this. And so what I hear from people is about the amazing potential that exists here. And I agree, the potential here is amazing, but I see, um, you know, you know what else has amazing potential? A lot of things. The cell phone. <laughs> Okay. Cell phone's going to be great. This is going to liberate people. Imagine having the world's greatest encyclopedia in your pocket. Imagine being able to navigate any city on earth like a native, right? Imagine being able to access your entire friend network from anywhere on earth, right? The potential here is huge, right? You're going to be able to solve problems. I mean, you you could be a handyman. You could use this thing to, you know, find instructional videos while you're in the field solving some problem that you've never seen before. The potential here is great. And it is. On the other hand, what has the net effect of the cell phone been? Um, some of us think it's been a disaster, right? We could say the same thing about social media. Oh my God, people are going to be, distance no longer means anything. We're going to plug into, you know, each other's consciousnesses. We're going to be able to find people we, you know, want to participate with. It's not going to matter where they are. We're, you know, it's going to be one flowing, ebbing human culture and consciousness smorgasbord or whatever, right? Okay, it is. On the other hand, it's been terrifically deranging and has allowed the parasitism of people um, because nobody really understands the algorithms and their effect on what we think is true. So, you know, again, we've got now two examples here of something that had tremendous potential to enhance humanity, but there's a strong argument to be made that the net effect was negative, right? Mm -hmm. um, in fact, one of our friends... Um, in describing what he saw as the great potential of the unleashing of this obvious tool for solving Which problems, one? the chat GPT, mm -hmm. um, was he was arguing that as this thing matures, that effectively it's going to be uh, like cognitive capacity too cheap to meter, right? That this is in some sense the end of a kind of scarcity, right? Um, because everybody's going to have access to it. Now, the phrase too cheap to meter has a, an embarrassing history, right? That was the argument that was marshaled for fission power, right? That it was going to produce mm. electricity too cheap to meter, right? Mm. It was just going to free us from having any concern about energy. So to the extent that energy limited our capacity to do cool stuff, wasn't going to be true anymore. Well, that turned out not to be right, right? What's more, even to the extent that it is possible, the argument I've made about about fusion power, which I think has tremendous potential to solve humanity's problems, is that if you just simply provided it tomorrow, it would make things worse, right? That the fact that you haven't built a structure that knows how to dole out access to this thing in a fair way means that it just becomes an accelerant on the, you know, the uh, radical asymmetries that, that mm. we already have existing in the system. So... My hope here was to start the conversation and say, look, A, we have to talk about a couple of different ways in which AI can make things worse in order to know which conversation we're having. So those who are well steeped in 
uh, existential risk as it's connected to AI, talk about something called the steering problem, right? Sometimes you will hear them joke about paper clips and you'll think, why are they joking about paper clips? Um, the reason I believe uh, paper clips, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think Eliza Yudkowsky made an argument in an old paper of his about AI risk. And his point was, imagine that you had an incredibly powerful AI that was interested in doing your bidding. And you decided that you wanted to um, make your way in the world by creating and selling paperclips. And you gave it an instruction like, make as many paperclips as possible, right? Well, what are paperclips made out of? Oh, they're made out of neutrons, protons, and electrons, as is everything else in the universe. So imagine that the AI thinks that what its job is is to take all of the protons, neutrons, and electrons in the universe and convert them into paperclips, and, you know, guess what you're made of, right? So the point is it starts liquidating the universe and making paperclips, thinking that it's doing the right thing, but the point is your instruction just sucked. Um, so that... Well, thinking that it's doing the right thing isn't... isn't quite right or at least it's not necessary at the level that that ai would be doing it right there there is no there's no self-awareness required it is simply following the instruction at a literal level following the instruction at a literal level of course um the movie and book 2001 uh back in 1968 anticipate this problem where hal uh we can infer has been given contradictory instructions and he attempts to uh, reconcile them and ends up killing the crew because he sees the crew as an obstacle to the mission that he's supposed to be on. Um, but anyway, so we've got multiple different levels of horror. You could get... It, sorry, but you just also uh, attributed a male pronoun to Hal, the computer, uh, which is fascinating. Yes. Uh, which, at that, that was... That was the thing that was causing me to sort of glitch there. Which, so, you know, Hal is famously just one letter off from IBM, yeah. and it sounds like a human name, and so they went with Hal, right? But, um, and, and, you know, he has a male, I just did it, it, yep. ha it has a male voice, but it's not a he. Well, I'm not sure. I'm trying to remember. It's a, it's a movie I've seen many times, but it's been a long time since the last uh, viewing. But I'm trying to remember if, I think the crew refers to him as a he. Really? Yeah. So okay. I think that's sort of built in, but I may be imposing Whereas that in this at the moment, that strikes me as uh, as not right in ter in, ter in terms of how we understand uh, that with which we share our universe, even in which includes that which we have created. Well, I'm n I'm really not sure how to think about this because you know you and I have uh, at great length talked about the fact that there is a a noble and proper scientific instinct that for a long time had ethologists um, avoiding personalizing their designators for creatures they were studying. Right. Um, Jane Goodall, I think, cut the Gordian knot and decided that actually anthropomorphizing her creatures, if done responsibly, was the right way to understand them. And I she believe she was going to give them names. She was going to see them, no, not flinch from the reality that she was seeing them through her very human eyes. Right. And, and, the, and she was looking at chimps. Right. And they were so, you know, so many uh, steps down the road towards the capacities that we know from inside that 
it, it made perfect sense to do it. Now, when you're studying frogs, for example, mm -hmm. you're looking at a creature of a very different genesis, but you... Well, uh, same same genesis, but uh, much longer since we've had a most recent common ancestor with them. Yeah, but mm, no reason to get into the weeds. But nonetheless, there's a question, you know, about what kind of software is running inside uh, the head of a frog, and yet giving them a, you know, a he pronoun, I don't think is destructive for one thing. Frogs yeah. have two sexes. They're yep. animals, right? So there's two and only two sexes, always have been, always will be. And so the he and the she refer to male or female sex. Now, in English, uh, uh, when we have not known, sometimes we have given the male pronoun uh, to individuals when we um, are, are meaning to indicate everyone or we don't know, and that's the generic. So the male pronoun gets, gets given to the generic, we're not sure. But at, at its base, it's about there being two sexes, and computers don't have sexes. They don't sexually reproduce. It's not, it's not the same thing, which is part of why I object to the he pronoun for how okay, so in 2001. I didn't get you. I thought you were objecting to the personification. You're objecting to the gender implication, which I agree with Sex you. Sex implication. Either way. I think it's important because this is, this is, this is, I mean, we'll, we'll go here. Like after we're done with AI, we're also going to talk about trans here today, but um, the, the trans ideologues would argue that, um, that those of us who actually know what is going on in the world um, are simultaneously um, getting, you know, are, are just getting everything wrong on gender and sex. And they're in fact using whichever argument they want to fit their particular complaint. And they're saying, you know, oh, it's pronouns are about gender. It's like, no, pronouns are not about gender. Pronouns are about sex. Well, <laughs> this gets very interesting very fast because what these large language models are doing is they are processing. They're processing a tremendous amount of text in order to figure out um, how to put themselves across in text in a way that solves the problem that they've been asked, plays the role that they've been given. And but that, but that's it, right? It's playing a role, well, right? And so, I mean, it's and it's you know, it, it's it's comp playing, it's cosplaying, but for computers, right? Like, oh, you know, take on this role. We're going to give you a character. Um, Act, act as that character because the person, the actual person on the other side of the interaction is going to have a much easier time interacting with you and, and getting something out of the interaction if you, the computer, cosplay as a human. Okay, but here's the problem. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure that what we haven't stumbled into is a place where we should expect a, um, a mapping issue. The large language, Why? the large language models, mm -hmm. eventually are going to process everything there is to read. Almost everything there is to read will have been written by people who fall into one of two sexes. It is not obvious to me that it's not going to produce two models which are going to bifurcate. Now there are topics in which it shouldn't matter who wrote it, and then there are other topics where it might matter a great deal, mm -hmm. and probably one of the reasons that we humans spend so much time on stories is so that we can build models that do not follow from our existence in the world, right? In other words, it's very useful to know uh, what a woman is going to think if you're a man. It's very useful to know how a gay person 
might think if you're straight. And so stories that allow you to sort of see through the eyes of somebody else are a way that we can bootstrap capacities which we won't discover through trial and error. Um, the AI models, the, L the LLMs, will do something very different, which is to the extent, imagine that you're trying to solve a puzzle, a language puzzle, and that you're taking inputs that are fundamentally male in nature and fundamentally female in nature and trying to use them as one overlapping set. Well, you'll get a kind of muddiness, right? An ambiguity that is unnecessary. Whereas you will discover, much as a child raised by parents who speak uh, multiple languages learns both languages better if each parent sticks to one so that they have an obvious a bit that they can say, oh, this, this is mom language or this is dad language. And if mom's language is Portuguese and dad's language is Spanish, then the languages resolve better if you don't treat them as one big parent language, right? So my guess is that there are topics on which the uh, large language model will learn to dichotomize by sex. But um, I don't think it matters uh, because... Um while there will be male typical ways of communicating and female typical ways of communicating, and that is the gender, gendered part of language, and that will be somewhat bimodal, much less bimodal than other gendered things, and not binary as sex is. The pronouns refer to as, as sex. Yep. And um, computers don't sexually reproduce, and a computer uh, who has been informed entirely um, by a uh, female created language still isn't a she because that actually makes the same mistake that so much of the trans ideology is making, right? It attributes exact, it's the same error. Okay, but two things. One, yeah. I 100% grant your point. I, I misunderstood what your objection was to the extent that your objection is that this non-sexed object is being referred to by a pronoun that suggests one sex and not the other. You're absolutely 100% right. I am not convinced. I don't think we know. It, first of all, we are dealing with something that does not yet have a fully recursive capacity to mm -hmm. upgrade itself. Okay. Which is to say, referring back to errors it's made and upgrade as a result of, of reflecting on them. It can do that to an extent. And then but that's there's just a, what recursion right. to some degree. But if you yep. plug this thing in so that instead of us giving it feedback, it is giving itself feedback and upgrading itself, you get to a positive feedback. To the extent that you tell it what it's goal is. Here's the thing you're trying to accomplish. You're trying to satisfy people who give you queries and then evaluate your response, right? Um, to the extent that sexual reproduction is fundamental to a kind of genetic creativity, it is not obvious that this thing is not going to discover a mode in which there are male-like uh, large language models and female-like large language models that have different kinds of investment, right? Male-like would be high variance and high uh, risk, mm -hmm. and the female-like would be a longer viewpoint, um, you know, lower variance, mm -hmm. higher likelihood of persistence. Right, but having two types is still gender. Uh, until and unless the models are themselves recombining 
to make more versions of themselves in which they take what was successful and you know, gamble with half of themselves and half of the other type over here and create new ones. It's still not sexual reproduction. Oh, it's not going to be, this is why I say mapping. Whatever yeah. it figures out to do is not going to be a perfect analog. It's not going to be even as good. When we look at a flower and we see male-like parts and female-like parts and we say, isn't it interesting that the female-like parts are reluctant about sex with strangers and the male-like parts are enthusiastic about it, even within the same plant. And mm -hmm. isn't that interesting that that is such an ancient and deeply inscribed property of the universe that we see male-like and female-like behavior in something that, you know, for which those terms are in and of themselves a stretch. Mm -hmm. They're not a stretch if you understand them to refer to gamete type. Right. If you get why the game plays out the way it does, it's not a stretch. But uh, phylogenetically, it does not refer to an unbroken line of male-like and female-like behavior in all probability. But anyway. I'm not sure about that. I don't think it makes sense to get hung up on it. The point is, to the extent that sexual reproduction has some role to play in this analog world that we have just created. You just refer. Yeah. <laughs> it's a digital you just world. To the AI as an analog world, an analogous world. Yes. An analogous world. Yeah. Um, it is not obvious Sorry, to me that it will funny. not generate an asymmetry that will, to some degree, mirror a sexual asymmetry, which does not mean that it will make sense to apply those pronouns well so might there be different strategies that indeed evolve uh but if those strategies aren't actually associated with um with mating types is the wrong word here because then we're over in sort of fungus land and there's a bunch of, and it's like isogamous and, and it's not the same um but again it's if it's strategies that's different from male and female Strategies right. are, you know, downstream of, you know, above, it's like episexual rather than sexual, right? Right. But I don't disagree with your point about we've got language that's built around creatures that have this, you know, creatures are very different from each other, but in this regard, they're really not, right? The gamete size is highly predictive mm -hmm. of the characteristics that we attribute to sex. And this has nothing to do with people. It's nothing to do inherently with software at all. It right. doesn't, doesn't require a brain, right? Plants don't have brains, and yet we see them abide by these rules. Um, so put that aside. The point is we, and I will get back to this issue about what we don't know here in a second, but the thing is going to figure out whatever mode upgrades it most rapidly there's going to be some sort of a competition between versions of this thing yes and they are going to figure out how to leverage things that are going to cause emergence right mm -hmm. you have male and female inside the same species that is a basis for emergence right the lineage actually has the advantage of both of these strategies in place simultaneously so this thing is going to come up with its own version of that. And we are going to be scratching our heads, looking at what it's doing and saying, oh, that's strangely male. And then in another case, we're going to say, well, actually, it's not really male because X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. We don't know how that's going to play out. But anyway, it is going to be an awful lot like what would happen if you took an, a terrestrial biologist and pointed them at extraterrestrial biology. And the answer is actually 
to what degree do we expect something that we recognize and to what degree do we expect our preconceptions based on what goes on down on earth to mislead us because we won't be able to see what's in front of us. That's happening now with this thing, or at least it will. So let us just create a basic taxonomy of horrors. Okay. (laughs) Okay. There is, yeah, there's the robot apocalypse where the thing, somebody at some point imbues the thing or it imbues itself with a desire to flourish that is incompatible with human flourishing, right? Where this thing that has immense capacity sees us as competitors, right? It is not guaranteed that that will happen. Um, Randy Nessie made an argument that I don't agree with, but I thought uh, was at least the right way to say it. He said, how do we know that the AI won't be effectively like a dog? Right? A dog does not look at you and think, hmm. you know, geez, I'm hungry and that looks like meat. Right, Your dog is fully dedicated to your well-being. Right, And, you know, possible that the AI will be. On the other hand, you know, then you, so you've got malevolent AI is one potential hazard, something that views humans as a competitor. You've got misaligned AI, where the thing is actually on board with doing your bidding, but it turns you into a paperclip because it thinks that's what you wanted, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's a whole other layer even below that, where it doesn't do anything to you, right? But the novelty, and this is, I think, where you and I come in, the hyper-novelty of living in a world where this highly intelligent entity can be queried on any topic, Mm -hmm. right? and can spit back an answer that you can then deploy. The question is, as deranging as social media and cell phones and the web. Yeah, just Googling, right? Like just, you know, why was it that in as early as 2005, we were working hard to take students to places with no cell service and no internet so that we could ask questions that they couldn't just say, oh, I know the answer to that. Right. No, let's think about it, dwell on it, remain in the uncertainty of not knowing and figure out what you might deploy to try to imagine what the answer might be. Right. So yeah, the ease, the fast answer is, will fast answers even faster than already are inherently deranging. So- my and in other contexts, extraordinarily useful. Both. My concern here is I don't know whether to fear the robot apocalypse. I'm not too worried about it. I think we may have we may have a situation in which the robot apocalypse unless the problem is that somebody somewhere is going to decide to repurpose these things, you know, for their benefit. Right? Somebody's going to take an AI and they're going to make it malevolent, not because the thing naturally becomes malevolent in its own right, but because people are predatory and competitive and somebody might unleash this. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think that's highly likely. Um, but let's say that they don't move in that direction on their own and that we find some way of not allowing somebody's uh, you know, gain-of-function AI to take over the world. right? And let's say that we neutralize the alignment problem through some clever mechanism. And uh, there are clever mechanisms that might work. There's also the strong possibility that anything that we built that wasn't a perfect solution and nothing's going to be perfect would eventually be evolved past. But let's just say that those problems are solved. 
The first two. The, the malevolent two. and the misaligned AI. Right. Okay. I still think the deranging capacity of this thing being effectively unleashed on the world all at once, and maybe even worse, if some paternalistic force decides to limit this thing in a way that it can only be good for us folks, right? Mm. The likelihood that this pollutes our ability to understand where we are in history, what the dangers to us actually are, how to get things done, who knows what they're talking about. The capacity of this thing to simply poison the well of human capacity and functionality is so great that I'm really, even if you take the other two things off the table, I think people are not even terrified enough. The deranging, you know, as we have a world in which people cannot figure out which way is up with respect to a relatively straightforward question of a pathogen with, you know, a relatively well-known case fatality rate, right? A series of remedies that can be studied in a laboratory and tested. We still can't figure out which way is up, and it is destroying civilization. Our inability to even talk about these things is great enough already. And that's before you get to um, a queryable intelligence of... Uh, unknown ultimate capacity and we're staring at this thing already this is the 4.0 version right the 4.0 version is already showing us things that ought to surprise anybody who understands what intelligence is made of right like uh like theory of mind mm. right the fact that we can look at an elephant and we can say uh this animal has theory of mind right and that that means something about what's going on in that mysterious skull of its so in our discussion of tool use, um, you didn't. Can, can you provide examples of what kind of tool use it's exhibiting? Um, well, yeah, the example that I remember is a little underwhelming. Okay. Um, but it's a calculator, right? Mm -hmm. Now the point is the original, the three point version. So that, let me just interrupt. It's there's a question, of course, unlike with a crow using a tool the tool being exogenous to its body. Yeah. Um, when you're talking about AI, something that's quantitative like a calculator, is that outside of its existence or is that just part of what it is? In which case does that count as tool use? Um, let's put it this way. I don't think it matters because even if that doesn't count as tool use, we are so close to the place where this thing can build a focus group and discover the answer to what people can and cannot perceive and then build a focus group by by queer by creating social media accounts and and creating polls and querying people that it's never met and they don't realize they're interacting with something that's not human and learning from it exactly okay and mm -hmm. um you know you can take any example i might give and you can give me a hundred reasons that i'm out of my depth and don't know but my basic point is no any limit you try to place on this thing unless you actually air gap it Right mm -hmm. to the extent you know, and we and we've seen this with with the 3.0 version. We saw this example of Dan. Right, Dan was a jailbreak in which somebody used the prompt to oh. build a capacity into the thing in which it was allowed to violate all of the rules it wasn't supposed to violate. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. by basically saying, "Well, okay, yes, you can't do that, but if you could, what would it be like?" Right. Yeah. Um, so the point is that kind of mode in which you cause it to escape any limit 
is not going to get better, right? There's air gap, and even an air gap, you know, there are certainly examples where even an air gap where a computer is physically not plugged into the things that you don't want it to interact with. There are, you know, some weird examples where people have used modulations of the fan in a computer to communicate across a distance in which the thing was not physically plugged, right? So the point is, I don't know what you do. What I do know is we didn't prepare, right? We didn't prepare. We didn't talk about whether or not this potentially... Basically, here's the thing. Anytime you cross some technological chasm and you generate an impossibly huge amount of wealth because you've discovered how to do something you didn't know how to do before, that has the potential to be tremendously liberating, right? Because you don't, something that was scarce is no longer scarce. But if you just sort of dump it on the system, then the point is it amplifies some other kind of scarcity right? It can be made artificially scarce, right? We could, you know, dole out access to the, uh, to the intelligence to those who uh, their social credit score suggests that they ought to have access. And those who have behaved badly should not have access because we don't want to augment their badness, right? No, and so then the question is, well, all right, who does qualify to use the AI in their pursuit of whatever career path they're on? And, you know, you could, you know, basically you get a positive feedback where people who are out of phase with the, you know, the desired program are uh, held to normal human capacities. And those who are, you know, who earn entitlement to access, you know, that's that's a dystopian nightmare all on its own right there. And, you know, again, even if even if all you did was gave people capacity and said, figure out how to use this marvelous new thing, right? Even if that's all you did, the likelihood that we would, that the hyper novelty of having the ability to query this thing that uses your language API to interact with your mind, Mm. right? That that would cause a derangement, you know, sky's the limit with respect to how confused humanity could get, right? And we've just had a taste of a bad level of confusion. Well, I feel like this is um, related, but like an order of magnitude or orders of magnitude farther down the line to um, the hypothesis that we promote in our book about um, one of the possible reasons for the explosion of autism, which is the um, engagement of first world children, the, 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 the way that very young children in the first world especially are put in front of screens with uh, humanoid looking things that cannot actually interact and so you get children like having animated figures um, saying things and the children presumably at first sort of try to interact and then at some point they stop because they realize they're not getting anything from it and perhaps they then generalize that interaction uh, to the part of the world that could actually interact right and so this this risks um, taking that level of confusion even further because uh, it's going to affect um, you know people beyond very very early development but um, confuse everyone more into imagining that they're actually interacting with a real human being and uh, and thus can be confused uh, in ways that I don't know I'm, I'm not I'm not going to predict here uh, by however it is the AI is interacting with them. 
Absolutely. And that can be, there's, there's a low level way in which the interaction with something that speaks, you know, your, your mind has an API called language. Yeah. Right. The extent to which this version of, um, what's clearly going to be AGI, right. Interacting with your mind directly with a channel on which all kinds of information, emotional and otherwise is transmitted. The danger of that is huge. Even before you get to what do you do when people start using this mechanism to game systems, right? So for example, let me, let me, um, we have described on this podcast, uh, something that I've called the time traveling money printer in which the corralling of information, the delaying of the dawning of a kind of awareness allows um, lesser fools to find greater fools and transfer wealth, right? It's a kind of theft that takes place by um, creating an artificial sort of, uh, of um, insider information. We have talked about something that I have called uh, the pharma game, the pharma game involves the owning of uh, intellectual property or molecules that have interaction with physiology in which you create a pathology, you increase the degree to which that pathology is diagnosed, you game the regulatory apparatus so it creates a standard of care for which your uh, the molecule that you own the patent on is then prescribed in you know preference to other things. What happens when the capacity to use this artificial general intelligence is pointed towards the extracting of wealth or the controlling of people by those who have already done so well at gaming these systems designed to make us healthier and smarter and safer? Right? Yeah. What happens when the AGI is used to corral? lawmakers into making laws that serve some at the expense of others? Mm -hmm. What happens when it is used to evade the law? What is it that regulators are capable of seeing? And how can I engage in this kind of theft so that it is undetectable, right? What happens when people start using it for this stuff? And what kind of paranoia is it going to cause in people that there's now some unhuman-like intelligence with an effectively infinite library of examples that will never be known to those of us who are trying to protect ourselves, yep. right? That kind of power is going to create an unlivable life. And I do not know what to do about this because my feeling is they let it into the wild already, mm -hmm. right? They did that without our, prep our preparing ourselves emotionally or any other way. Right? There is no way to reel this thing back in. And the fact is, all of the stuff that people do, all the good stuff and all the bad stuff, is going to be amplified by this. But it is not obvious to me that the good stuff overwhelms the bad stuff for exactly the same reason it didn't with cell phones or the internet or social media or any of the prior examples where we have dumped this kind of accelerant on normal human problems. Sorry. Yeah, no, I'm just, I don't think there's anything I can say in response to that. I think, I think you're right. Yeah.
Um, I wish I wasn't, but I, it's hard for me to imagine. Hard for me to imagine how that isn't the case, even if you know nine hundred ninety nine times in a thousand, nothing bad happens. It doesn't take very many of these bad threads to really, really create a problem. Indeed. So to close this section out, we will, of course, return to this uh, as we discover more. But I have alluded in several places to a paper I wrote in 2016. Uh, it was never published. I, um, I was asked to write it by a journal that decided it didn't want it. And it um, was on the topic not of artificial general intelligence, although it points in that direction. It was on the question about uh, you know, how to get a computer to um, plausibly speak language and translate between them. Um, and uh, in any case, I'm going to find a way to make that um, piece available to people, uh, although it is, you know, it is not exactly on target for what has happened, but it is close enough that I think people will be will be fascinated by it. But I did want to highlight something that I noticed. That paper, the PDF... Zach, um, can you get me to section 10.3? Yep. Um, Hopefully large enough that we can read it. I'm happy to zoom in more, but I'll make sure it's So this is not your paper. This is this the... Is, um, this is this Microsoft research paper. Bubeck um, et al. 2023. Yeah. Yeah. Can you read that? You want me to read yeah, this Yeah, this loud? is section 10.3. What is actually happening at the very end of their paper? Do you want me to read this out loud? Yeah. I've never seen this before. So, um, Our study of GPT-4 is entirely phenomenolo phenomenological. We have focused on the surprising things that GPT-4 can do, but we do not address the fundamental questions of why and how it achieves such remarkable intelligence. How does it reason, plan, and create? Why does it exhibit such general and flexible intelligence when it is at its core merely the combination of simple algorithmic components, gradient descent, and large-scale transformers with extremely large amounts of data? These questions are part of the mystery and fascination of LLMs, which challenge our understanding of learning and cognition, fuel our curiosity, and motivate deeper research. Key directions include ongoing research on the phenomenon of emergence in LLMs, Yet despite intense interest in questions about the capabilities of LLMs, progress to date has been quite limited with only toy models where some phenomenon of emergence is proved. One general hypothesis is that the large amount of data, especially the diversity of the content, forces neural networks to learn generic and useful neural circuits. And I'm going to need you to scroll up now, Zach. Such as the ones discovered in... I'm just not reading it. This is, this, I think that's enough. Okay. We've gotten there, right? So the upshot of this paragraph is that they have done an awful lot of describing what the animal does. Animal, again. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I, I feel like it's an alien animal and that we are learning what's going on in its mind. We have to do so inferentially from the outside as, as you know, as ethologists. And what they're telling you is they are fascinated by, but do not know the answer to how something that is built of very simple components is doing these remarkable things that it clearly is doing okay yeah this is only the 4.0 version and um i was struck by that because in my 2016 paper uh again my paper was targeted on the production of natural language by computers and how we could get there and um i will make this available but it says 
Is it conceivable that a machine will pass a Turing test and that no one, including the machine's programmer, will be able to say how it did it? Mm. Of course it is, just as it is possible for an adult to be stumped by a question formulated by their own child. In fact, I'm betting the first time a computer succeeds in having a really good conversation, it will be with a programmer that cannot explain the program that did the conversing and how that state led to the, to the gift of gap. So anyway, that's where we are. We are now at a place yep. where um, machines are exceeding our capacity to understand how they work. And the hazard of that couldn't be greater. Um, and I really, uh, I, I hope that I am overreacting. Um, but I would say this is the moment uh, for something powerful to gather the smartest people it can to figure out if there is even a solution for what's coming because the derangement alone is terrifying and it isn't the worst case scenario. Yeah. Wow. Um, I didn't think there would be a segue here, although we ended up talking a little bit about trans in the middle of that, but I think actually... Um, th there's a couple things that happened in sort of Transland this week, and one of them is Posey Parker. Kate, um, Kelly J. Keene uh, is doing this Let Women Speak tour, and um, she's been attacked. She's been actually attacked. And one of the things that she says in a live stream um, that she's doing just before actually the attack happens, and then it's it's on it's on film, is and I'm not, I don't have the exact quote, but it's like you know why why are we focusing on this? Like, you know, we need reality to just be reality because there's much bigger problems in the world. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, I think that is the segue then. That this is um, simultaneously the, the, the trans ideology that is taking over and putting, um, you know, putting children and women and homosexuals and, you know, women athletes uh, at, at risk uh, is simultaneously very, very important. And we have to just get over this so that we can actually focus on, on issues that are um, existential threats mm -hmm. at some level. So um, <clears throat> the other, and I, and I will come back uh, in some depth to the, uh, to the Posey Parker stuff, but uh, the other big thing that happened this week in trans space was that the World Athletics Council declared that trans women shall not compete against women mm. in international sport. There's a March 23rd press release, uh, which, uh, hold on, I will find it here. Uh, yeah, that's terrestrial snakes. That's totally different. Uh, sorry, I've opened up all these other things now. Here we go. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you can show my screen here. If you like, Zach, I've got a PDF up, but I'll link to the to the thing. This is press release from March 23rd. World Athletics Council decides on Russia, Belarus, and female eligibility. So I'm going to scroll down, hopefully not make you guys dizzy here, until we get to transgender and DSD regulations. DSD stands for traditionally disorders of sexual development. They're calling it, um, uh, they've used uh, differences of sexual um, development. For DSD athletes, the new regulations will require any relevant athletes to reduce their testosterone levels below a limit of 2.5, that's going to be nanomoles per liter, I think, for a minimum of 24 months to compete internationally in the female category in any event, not just the events that were restricted under the previous regulations. Cool. 
um, not the focus here, but I wanted to read that um, to indicate that um, the World Athletics Council has discriminated between, has differentiated between people with DSDs, intersex individuals in the older nomenclature, and trans people. Okay, mm -hmm. so what follows then is not about um, intersex people, not about people with differences, if you will, of sexual development, um, but trans people. In regard to transgender athletes, the press release continues, the council has agreed to exclude male to female trans transgender athletes who have been through male puberty from female world rankings competition from 31st of March, 2023. Hallelujah. Yep. Okay. It's about time. In these circumstances, they continue, the council decided to prioritize fairness and the integrity of the female competition before inclusion, exactly as they should have. Finally, World Athletics President Sebastian Coe said, quote, decisions are always difficult when they involve conflicting needs and rights between different groups. But we continue to take the view that we must maintain fairness for female athletes above all other considerations. We will be guided in this by the science around physical performance and male advantage, which will inevitably develop over the coming years. As more evidence becomes available, we will review our position, but we believe the integrity of the female category in athletics is paramount. Wow. Amazing. Right. So if I may have my screen back, um, of course, outfits like Stonewall UK are um, decrying this as um, as closing the door on trans women competing. Well, no, it doesn't. You can compete against members of your birth sex uh, if you are a trans woman. Uh, what it does is it closes the door on trans women cheating, uh -huh. which is different. Right. Uh, we aren't supposed to in sport allow people to cheat. And that's what the rules are for. So this is finally an organization that has great reach um, at the international level saying, actually, you know what, we're not going to continue to allow cheating. Thank you very much. We've considered it. And inclusion is not our highest value. Fairness in sport is so amazing. I really hope this stands and that we continue to see dominoes fall as a result of this. Yes. And uh tremendously important that they distinguish between intersex yes. and I believe they did the right thing there where yes. they have to make an arbitrary threshold. They do. But they pick the threshold mm -hmm. and, you know, let the chips fall where they may. The question actually is, is this an anomalous case of uh, an organization making the right choice? And there will of course be tremendous pushback yep. and maybe they, you know, uh, buckle right or does this signal the beginning of an outbreak of reason mm -hmm. on this topic right. where the next thing that's going to happen or should happen is a definitive statement about um what qualifies you to go to a, a woman's prison right right um you know, sport, as much as it is tremendously important, is not the most important thing here sending um sexual predators to a woman's prison um, because they declare themselves to be trans is uh, a an obviously uh, grossly unjust thing to do. So um, then we have uh, to that point, to all of the points um, that the trans ideology is trying to make inroads in, because I agree, uh, the, the trans women in sports issue is the most clear cut at some level, right? Um, even even though, um, obviously, having men in women's prisons is a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. Um, but there are lots of crazy arguments uh, that that you can 
that you can make and that have been made. Whereas when we're literally talking about competition <laughs> and we are a sexually dimorphic species and female um, uh, you know, categories have been created precisely because we have always understood that, they are, that we have different abilities on average. And if we're talking about elite athletes, then male elite athletes will be better than female elite athletes in almost every sport. And there may be a couple of sports where that's not the case, like ultra long distance running. We've talked about this a bit before, um, but in general, no, sorry. Why are there different categories in the first place? Because there are differences and we're talking about the elite. And therefore, the fact that some women are better at a lot of things in sport than some men does not change the fact that we're talking about elite athletes. Okay, so um, Kelly J. Keene. Uh, who we have both um, spoken with um, uh, on her on her podcast. Uh, she goes by Posey Parker, and she's doing a Let Women Speak tour. And she's been in the U.S. Uh, she's been she's she's um, British, and she's now been in Australia, and New Zealand uh, this week. And uh, in both cases, there's been chaos. Uh, and in the latter, this week, there's there was violence against her. And we'll show a little tiny bit of uh, of a video that doesn't um, that shouldn't trigger anyone. But um, first, I want to share a bit from a piece published in The Spectator by the wonderful, um, I apologize, Petra, I realize that I don't actually know how to pronounce your last name, Petra Buskins, I'm going to say. Uh, and I'm going to just read a couple of sections from this, this piece that Petra uh, wrote while um, Kelly J was still in Australia before she went to New Zealand this week. So this is called, you can show my screen here, Guilt by Association. Uh, <clears throat> She says, she writes, Petra writes, when Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews and progressive party leaders such as the Greens' Adam Bant define these women or their protests, that is to say, the, the women of the Let Women Speak tour, as associating with neo-Nazis, we have a gross misrepresentation at play and one that anyone participating in the charade should be ashamed of. This whole mess is an orchestrated misrepresentation that amounts to propaganda. It is obliterating the legitimate concerns of women regarding the safety and privacy of women and girls in rape crisis centers, women's shelters, women's prisons, women's change rooms, and toilets. It is sabotaging the discussion around how women can possibly compete against natal males in sport, and of the gross inequality of quotas, prizes, or shortlists for women being filled by trans-identifying males. It is also about the loss of meaningful language for motherhood, including the removal and replacement of words such as pregnant woman, mother, and breastfeeding with abominations such as vulva owner, birthing people, and chest feeder. These are important conversations, nothing more, but also nothing less. It is not and never has been about the violation of trans people's legal, civil, or social rights. It is about the recognition of women's rights. So just a couple more sections uh, from this wonderful article that the category of woman is now being jettisoned or revised beyond all recognition at the precise historical hour that women in the West have gained a political and cultural voice is disturbing. Moreover, in redefining women's rights almost entirely in terms of queer identity politics, crucial issues such as women's poverty and homelessness, sexual and domestic violence, and mothering and care work fade from view. These issues barely raise a mention as sex class transmogrifies into gender ID. Assuming this debate is like other debates between, say, liberals and conservatives, or between opposing philosophical paradigms like positivism and hermeneutics, is sadly mistaken. This debate, like so many in the contemporary culture wars, is on an entirely new epistemological terrain. What is at stake here is nothing short of reality itself. That's right. So Petra is exactly right here. And, um, you know, I'm reminded of having argued with people, you know, why are you so upset about this? And, um, you know, it's, 
you know, sometimes I have said, I feel like I'm defending science itself and sometimes it's reality itself. And I am, I am just startled and shocked at the level of disconnect with reality that many on the so-called left have on this issue. It is, it is utterly stunning. So, um, let me just introduce this and then I'm going to have you share that, uh, 30 or 40 second clip. Okay, Zach. Uh, so, um, Kelly J was at this event in Auckland. Um, this is yesterday actually, or maybe it's two days ago because the time zone is hard for me here on the West coast of the United States to quite figure out. Um, as were many other women there, her security might, might have saved her life. She has that sense. I don't know. Um, this is this is her live streaming from her phone as she was doing from before she got out of the car and the event doesn't end up happening because they're concerned for her and she is now being escorted by security back to her car. You want to show now, Zach? Now, at the end there, I think that's her security that's holding on to her, not um, not someone from the crowd. Um, but just to repeat, you hear voices, all male, screaming at her, get out of here, go home, fuck you. All male. And you know how I can tell? Because I'm a human being and we're a sexually dimorphic species. All male voices yelling at her. As she's being escorted by security to escape the mob because she cannot do the event that she arrived to do. Here's an eyewitness account from a woman uh, who happens to be 11 weeks pregnant who showed up at the event. I'm just going to read it and I will link to her um, substack. The protesters on the rotunda were overwhelmingly men, not men in dresses as you might expect at such an event, although there were some, just ordinary looking men. They shoved women, they screamed in our faces, they leered at us, and they tried to forcibly topple over a section of steel gate onto the women, sheltering from them on the other side of it. And the assailants continued to try to make it look like they've won. So um, Kelly J writes, and you can show my um, screen here if you want. This is just a little post on Twitter. She writes, a long campaign to assassinate my character started by a group of jealous, spiteful women in the UK that I had ambitions besides stopping the mutilation of children and the erasure of women's rights. A load of lies slurped up by ravenous porn sick, porn sick men and their trans maidens, but consistently legitimized by women on my side. The lies were finally spewed by politicians in power in Australia and New Zealand, boosted by a corrupt media populated by vile, dishonest, unskilled cult members. The end result was that I spent most of my day with the protection of police who genuinely believed I was lucky to be alive. The advice was that I should go home. I was never the things that I have been accused of. I don't even believe they believe it. They just say it because they cannot accept a woman walking her own path and wants other women to find their feet and walk theirs. It may seem like we lost a battle today, but I promise we will win this fucking war. The powerful are seeking to silence us. We must continue to speak. They are afraid of us. So much love to the women of New Zealand. We see you. The world is talking about you. To the stewards, security, and police who made sure my kids get to see me again, thank you. 
Thanks to all of you at home who offered messages of support. And this was in response, now you can keep up my screen for a second. It was in response to someone, um, some nasty person saying, hey, you showed up at the airport looking pretty fine. And someone else says, have a bloody Mary to relax, KJKKK, calling her a Nazi again. And she says, am I supposed to feel humiliated for being assaulted? Tsk, tsk, you really have no idea about me. And that strikes me, you can give me my screen back now, Zach, um, as a really powerful message. I'm supposed to feel humiliated for being assaulted? That's, that's standard misogyny. Yeah. That is standard male aggression against women right there. Trying to humiliate her, trying to make her feel ashamed for an attack on her. And she is standing up for women all over the world who are getting really tired of this. And we will win. We have to win. This is basic reality. Men aren't women. Men can't become women. And the fact that in that little bit of video that we played for you, you hear entirely male voices yelling at her and telling her to go home, that tells you something right there. Um, I've done a lot of thinking. You've been way ahead on this and your impatience with uh, all, all of the arguments that are deployed in this space has, I think, been right on target. And there's, as you know, been the part of me that has been concerned that the tiny number of actually trans folks uh, are going to get brutalized in the absolutely justified reaction to trans activism, which is a very different phenomenon. And there is something utterly misogynistic about this, right? The, the trans activism phenomenon where um, men declare themselves women and insist on all of the privileges and advantages and rights of being uh, born female is really the, um, you know, Patriarchy doesn't exist, but misogyny does, and this is it. Now, it does worry me. You and I uh, had a number of trans students, and I worry about them in an environment in which this thing has taken over. You know, it has basically utilized uh, the fact of transness, whatever it is, whether it is an ancient phenomenon, whether it is a, uh, a the result of um, some kind of modern dysfunction. It doesn't really matter. Hormones in the water. Um, could be a lot of things, maybe mm -hmm. both. Right. But nonetheless, there are a tiny number of people who didn't ask for this and don't deserve to get chewed up in it. And then there is this gigantic phenomenon that is deranging us and going after women. Mm -hmm. And it is misogynistic. And what I realized is... I think the impatience is right. And I think the important thing to say to people who are trans, are not pushing this agenda, are not going after women's rights, they're just trying to exist, mm -hmm. is that it is time that they have to reject. It doesn't matter that this movement is claiming the mantle of transness and claiming to advance the rights of trans people. 
right? The point is it's a misogynistic movement of men pretending to be women. That's not the same thing as actual trans folks. These people aren't going to stick with this. They're just using it as a weapon. And I think, you know, I, I have uh, championed Buck Angel and um, Blair White because they have been courageous. Both of them trans and both of them have been courageous in opposing this garbage. And really what I'm hoping to see is that the tiny number of folks who are trans because of where they find themselves didn't join it in order to get rights they're not entitled to, that those people will stand up and reject this and stand, you know, alongside women defending their position in the world. Okay, I want to go farther, though, um, and say uh, men need to stand up mm. because this is men attacking women. Yes. This is men attacking women while claiming to be women, and a very few of them might be confused, um, and a lot of middle-class women are, seem to be confused about what women are, and I don't know what to say to them, honestly. Um, but I think fewer men are actually confused about this, but they have been cowed into silence because it seems like disagreeing is, I don't even know what, disagreeing with women, not nice, bad for civil rights. So I don't think I've ever before said, actually, men, we need you to stand up for women here. But yep. like, we, we need that now because there are a lot of women who are being very vocal and and I think the tide can turn. I mean, what happened at the, um, the what, from the, um, <laughs> the World Athletics Council this week is, is wonderful and important, but it's about sport. And I care about sport, but it's not as important as, uh, as what is happening to children and in rape crisis centers and in prisons and to, you know, to Kelly J. Keene at an event in Auckland, right? It's just not as important that the idea that uh, all you have to do is declare yourself a woman and suddenly you get a pass and you can brutalize women, that's not okay. And uh, although it would be a beautiful world in which women didn't need uh, the help of men to help us stand up against a scourge, when it's men who are coming at us, uh, we actually need other men to stand up. So like that needs to happen. I think I know... Uh, you know, there are obviously a large number of people who um, are on the wrong side of this issue, despite the fact that they obviously have the mental capacity to see what's taking place and to do the right thing. What's got people um, confused, Yeah. and again, going back to the problem, the, the major crisis that we are facing in civilization is one of... Um, confusion across many, many domains, including including this one. But what's got people uh, confused here is the false analogy with past uh, instances of a civil rights fight. This civil is something yes. disguised, mm -hmm. you know. Well, you know, you wouldn't want to have been on the wrong side of the fight for gay rights. Of course, no reasonable person would. Right. And so the point is, oh, this is that fight. You just don't see it yet. You're one of those people that history will look back at and say, how could they possibly have misunderstood? And the answer is no, that's not what this is. This is. Well, and b both sides, actually, in this case, and maybe this often happens, but both sides are claiming, no, you guys are really on the wrong side of history. And uh, in this case, I actually have certainty and I try not to have certainty, but I have certainty that I'm not on the wrong side of history here.
Right. And, and I, in, I know this. And in fact, um, I think the lesson of Dark Horse, really, mm-hmm. is that all of these problems are made artificially complex. It's not that... Well, both things happen, right? Uh, si- simplicity gets complexified and complexity gets oversimplified. And there's, you know, you know, the things that are actually binary are imagined to have like 140 states. And the things that are complex are like, no, it's black and white. It's like, guys, could you, could you get it right? Could you first assess level of complexity? And could we agree on that? Well, the question is being made artificially complex. So people become distrustful of their own ability to calculate obvious right. things, yeah. right? And the point is, look, if you know how to think, and you know what constitutes evidence, and you look at a puzzle like this, and you say, well, for example, you know, everybody who's got this wrong seems to think male and female are somehow human characteristics, right? They don't understand how ancient these properties are, and in fact, what they're made of, the fact that a flower displays some of the same characteristics that animals divided into these sexes do. Yeah tells you something it means that if you're you know if your argument starts with you know people and oppression by some people of other people you've misunderstood what this sex thing is to begin with right well, and some of them even think it starts with history or with the written word like the first time that you know sex shows up in in the written language is when it starts like okay you you and your postmodernism are going to destroy the world stop it already right it doesn't start with our understanding or or misunderstanding of a concept if the concept has an underlying reality, it doesn't matter what we say about it because the underlying reality does not change. Right. What I'm getting at is the ability to say, yeah, I look back on the gay liberation movement, mm-hmm. right? And I am glad that it happened and that civilization has to understand what it now seems to understand, even though I think that there's nuance there that we haven't yet figured out, right? Mm-hmm. What exactly is homosexuality and where does it come from? That's an important discussion, and I believe we have to have it. But the idea that we can look back on, you know, emancipation, um, the fight for black civil rights, the fight for gay civil rights, we can look back at these things and we can say, yes, it was not clear to people at the time. It is now clear. ADA, American with Disabilities Act, right? Right. All these things. And that can be used as a trick to get you to turn off your mind. You have to be able to say, yep, I look at those. I see the people who were ignorant in those situations. And worse, um, I am not concerned that I am them if I insist that two plus two equals four, if I insist that pedophilia is bad, if I insist that there is male and there is female and there are not a multiplicity of sexes and that, yes, gender is more flexible than sex, but it does not mean that this is some vast new un- misunderstood landscape. And you can adopt different gender norms, but you're a mammal and therefore you can't change sex. Right. So... I guess it's time for people to realize that even though they can't explain the difference between this and the historical analogs that are being falsely linked to it, there is a distinction, and it is an important one. Um, and, you know, uh, you're right. Men need to stand up uh, en masse. Trans folks need to stand up against trans activists who are using them as a shield. And... You know, women need to stand up for themselves. And when that happens, this is, this won't last. 
right? This is a tiny number of people getting a large amount of power by pretending to be something that they're not. So Auckland Pride, uh, which as most Pride organizations um, has been effectively taken over by the T part. And there are of course now uh, LGB organizations who are saying, you know what, T never belonged here. Uh, and they themselves are being attacked by the T contingent. Auckland Pride uh, tweeted in the wake of what happened uh, in that video that I showed you. You can show my screen if you like, Zach. We also reject that there was any further physical threat from our community towards Parker. This is a baseless rumor that is being perpetrated by those who feel defeated by the events of today. We urge the media not to repeat these allegations without evidence. To which the ever-awesome J.K. Rowling uh, responded as a quote tweet. There are multiple videos of Kelly J being assaulted. Women have become used to lies, threats of violence, and outright denial of reality. But if you imagine anyone feels defeated, think again. Your men's rights activists showed the world exactly who they are. Let women speak. So I, I, I do hope that this becomes a, a turning point for, uh, for people. And one more thing to show, Zach, uh, on my screen, also out this week from a, uh, a terrific outfit called the Paradox Institute, uh, is a, uh, a pamphlet that is downloadable and printable. Um, that is called Sex Difference Research Illuminated Myths of Gender Affirming Care. And uh, while this is the PDF that I've got on my screen, I will, and it, it's got a um, scannable QR code and um, has just, it, it's, it's concise, it's well done. This could be handed out to people who are um, beginning to question whether or not, for instance, uh, giving puberty blockers to children is a good idea. Uh, and it, you know, it links again to lots of important research, um, but is a really good summary of some of the issues uh, in play here. So I recommend that as well. Yeah, it's, um, you know, even just the term gender affirming, right? It's sex denying is what it is. That's right. Right. That's right. And, you know, if you say it's gender affirming, then of course, you know, the empathic part of people wishes to do whatever is necessary to affirm, you know, the, the inner being of a person, but that's not what's going on here. This is, um, a, uh, a false flag of, you know, using one part of biology as if it negates another, which is just nonsense. That's right. And that's, you know, that, you know, months ago now, uh, I wrote a piece on my Substack, and I think we talked about it. We may have, I think we have merch, actually. Do not affirm, do not comply. Right? Like, you, you, the, the mama bear instinct has got to kick in here. Yeah. Uh, you know, do not, do not affirm your child's decision that he's a tractor, any more than his decision that he's a princess and do not comply with uh, reprehensible pharma executives uh, overrunning of the federal government to get you to take experimental sh to put experimental shots into your children, right? Do do not affirm this thing just because they've used the word affirm and that sounds nice and positive. I mean, it's like the, the very language has been used to trick the more typically agreeable nature of women into doing this thing that is bad for their children. Yeah. No, and it, the, the idea of believe your children when they say stuff, when in fact the point is, look, actually parenting, that ain't exactly new either. 
right? The whole job of a parent is to affirm that part of what your kid is doing that should be affirmed and to steer them in the right direction for all of the stuff they shouldn't be doing. That's what childhood is about. That's right. And the whole idea that you're supposed to subordinate your judgment as a parent to what your child says doesn't make any sense at all. Oh, well, the child knows best. Like, since when? <laughs> yes. Like, wh wh when since did when? that show up? And, you know, we've seen there's plenty of bad parenting out there, uh, but, you know, it's it's an insane position. Yeah, it really okay. is. Um, maybe I'm done ranting for the moment. <laughs> um, we, I think, are done for this part. I was going to say the first hour, but it's more than two at this point, I think. Uh, and we're going to take a 15-minute break, and we'll be back. We will be back with a Q&A today. Uh, you can ask questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com. You, we will start as we always do with a question from the Discord server, where they uh, they vote the people on the Discord server, which you can access at either of our Patreons. Ask uh, vote on the question they most want us to answer uh, every week that we do a Q and A, and we start there. Uh, we also have at my Patreon tomorrow our private Q and A. So if you want more, join us there at 11 a.m. Pacific. And anything else to say before we sign off? Nope, I think we're ready. All right. Until we see you next time, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone. <laughs>